I'm Frank Gallagher, host of Soundman Confidential. It's showtime. Plug in. It's good to have you along. We've had a great response from our first five shows, so please keep tuning in and subscribe. And if you feel like it, throw us a few stars in the reviews if you like what you're hearing. Speaking of stars, you're in for a special treat this week. My guest is the multi-instrumentalist and singer, Kate Pearson, a member of one of the most original bands in music history, the B-52s. They burst out of Athens, Georgia in the 1970s, mixing their amazing blend of style and unique sound. I've had the pleasure of mixing the live show for the Bees in the last few years. In a future show, you can hear my chat with Fred Snyder. But for now, get yourself a cup of tea and a biscuit and settle in for my chat with the one and only, the amazing Kate Pearson of the B-52s. Hello, Frank Gallagher, my old friend. It's a pleasure to have you uh, talking to us on, on Soundman Confidential today. And you and I, in the interests of full disclosure, you and I know each other for many years, and uh, we currently you're currently my employer if we were ever allowed to do anything. <laughs> yes, I guess you can look at it that way. I look at it more as a collaboration. I mean, uh, to me, the sound person is just, uh, although you call it sound man, you are a man, but... I think that the relationship between the band and the sound person is just like a, a very big collaboration because people don't realize how much the sound, of course, music is sound, but how much that enhances it and creates this, you know, incredible, uh, you know, in a concert, that's really, the sound man has a control. Let's just say that you have control of how we sound. We don't have control. We can play our asses off. We can, think we sound amazing but you're the one that really makes it sound good well thank, thank you for that reinforcement but and uh i don't know much about your early years kate when were you first uh made aware of sound and and specifically sound in relation to music well i mean of course as soon as i was you know, learned to play the piano at you know i mean early on i was aware of the sound but in terms of any kind of electrified sound. Um, I guess I was aware, you know, cause I was a big fan of Bob Dylan's and I just did this uh, live streaming for the Bardavon theater. And it was the anniversary of highway 61 revisited. And I did that song in the uh, live stream. And that's, you know, when Dylan went electric, that kind of thing, uh, you know, just the difference between, and, and it became controversial, you know, the difference between electric and, um, and that, of course, even acoustic uh, performances were augmented with, you know, amplifiers and things for concerts. But, you know, I think I really became aware of the sound on stage is when we first started and our first performances at Max's Kansas City. And there was always this tension between the vocal and, and the loud guitar and the drums and the stages were super small and, you know, you had to kind of negotiate and balance the sound. At one time, uh, Richard Lloyd, I'll never forget this, he jammed with us. And Richard Lloyd and uh, Dear France, who booked uh, uh, Max's Kansas City, came down to Athens uh, to visit us. And so anyway, we had a relationship with Richard Lloyd and he jumped on stage and jammed with us, which I wish we had 
a recording of that because it must have been phenomenal. But his guitar was so loud. Cindy actually turned it down. She turned around and kept turning the volume down. He kept turning the volume up. She would turn around, turn the volume volume down. And we had a hilarious kind of stage setup where we each had a, a task and Fred was supposed to plug things in. I had did all the patch cords between the organ and the amp, you know, and I can't believe I knew how to do that. But anyway, you know, just plugging stuff in. Fred had to plug things in and he would always stand there with the plug and say like, where is the outlet? Can anyone help me plug this in? And someone would come and, you know, help. But, uh, you know, the overpowering instrument instruments and your ear shattering, you know, you're trying to sing without really hearing yourself because the stage was so loud stage sound. So thank God for ultimate ears, the in-ear monitors that we got later. Yeah. Much, much later. So uh, going back, how did, um, how old were you when you, 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 you figured out that getting on a stage was, and, and uh, performing was, was something. And how did you get there musically and also logistically and physically at that time? And where, and where were you living? Were you at college then or, or before college even? What was your musical uh, path before the college years and you met the rest of those people in Athens? Well, I, my father was a professional guitar player in a, like a big band kind of thing when he was very young or, you know, early 20s. And then when he got married, he had to kind of quit that. I guess it wasn't too uh, lucrative. So uh, he worked at Curtis Wright Corporation, but he always played. Uh, he always played the guitar at home, and my grandmother played the piano, and we lived in my grandmother's house, so I would just kind of live with her, more or less. And she would play the piano and sing Mockingbird Hill, and she would sing Twiddly Dee, Twiddly Dum Dum. And there were the just lamest songs, too, on the radio. Uh, I mean, this is dating me going way back, but like, you know, the late 50s or mid-50s, they were just like really weird songs, you know, like, when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, it's amore. That kind of thing was a hit. You know, so but so because my dad was really cool and he played like Django Reinhardt and Ema Sumac and he had all the lounge records, you know, and all the K Winding and and Ella Fitzgerald and, you know, he had all the jazz stuff. So that's what I really grew up listening to. And. You know, so I was definitely trying to play guitar, you know, I would sit in his lap and strum the guitar. And then I took piano lessons for about six years in grade school up until junior high school. And then I took up the guitar because I was really passionate about the folk movement was really happening then and topical music. And I was really into, I was already kind of of a pre hippie. Uh, So I had long, long hair and I wanted to play the guitar and sing folk protest songs. So we formed a band, our friends, two friends and I had a band called the Sun Donuts it was originally the Sundowners, but there was a band called that. So, you know, oh, no, we couldn't, you know, our high school band could not clash with that. So we called it the Sun Donuts, and we wrote folk protest songs, pretty upbeat songs. And we we played for uh, sometimes school assemblies, and we played for, one time we played for the over, I think it was the over 80s club where everyone was kind of asleep while we played. But it was really fun playing, you know, having the band. We had a, a, a 
folk music, uh, what do you call it, a club. I was president of the folk club in high school. And I played uh, through college. You know, I wound up going to college, Boston University. And somehow I really, like, I always knew I wanted to be a singer. I always wanted to be a musician. But, you know, sometimes that path in your life doesn't lead straight uh, through to what you want, your goal. And I thought once I went to college that that opportunity may have passed, you know, like I'm not going to be a professional musician. Uh, I studied journalism, but my heart, I really wanted to still be in a band. But I, and I wished, oh, why didn't I run off to New York City, you know, and go to Bleecker Street? And I did actually play in a couple of clubs there, but, um, you know, just audition kind of thing. But I never really, you know, ran away from home to, to uh, join the circus, so to speak. So I wound up going to college. And then after college, I had been involved in protests and civil rights and Vietnam, anti-Vietnam. And I was just really, after Kent State, I'd had it with America. It was just like, it was kind of worse than, well, could it be worse than now? No, it wasn't worse than now. But, uh, you know, how many times have we said we're leaving America? But this time I said, I'm going to Europe, getting away from America. I'm going to see the world. And I traveled through Europe. This is a long story. Should I tell the whole story? Should I cut Please. to the chase? Please. All right. So on my travels, I wound up staying in Europe uh, for a year and a half. And I met uh, my future ex-husband, Brian Cocaine, C-O-K-A-Y-N-E. And he was from Manchester, England. And we wound up traveling some more together. And then we came back to it. We came to America. And he had never been to the South. He was fascinated with the American South. He'd worked on fishing boats, so he wanted to go to South Carolina and work on a shrimp boat. But through the hand of fate, we wound up going to Athens because I had a friend who had a friend who was driving down there with a bunch of people. And he said his brother could give Brian a job, etc. So we wound up going to Athens. And for two years, we just did a back to the land thing. We grew vegetables and lived on the fruits of the land. We rented this farm. $15 a month, no running water. That was basically the love shack. It was out outside of five miles outside of Athens. And it was just beautiful. We had an outhouse with a view of the cow field. And it was just the most beautiful, really great experience um, growing vegetables and having goats. And I made goat cheese. And it was just really, really cool. But, you know, Brian and I started drifting apart and I got had to work at some point. We just had no money. So I got a job and then I met the rest of the band and started hanging out. We had a larger group of friends, but it was like Keith, Ricky. Later, we met Cindy, uh, Fred, and I met them all. And, you know, kind of I met Fred at a party and I danced with him. And I met Keith the first time I saw him. He was playing drums in another band and. Then I met, you know, Ricky through Keith. So, you know, it all then one Halloween, we all, Fred and I met Cindy. Uh, so we just started all hanging out together. It was a larger group of people, Jeremy Ayers and Owen Scott and different people. And we would crash parties and get free drinks and dance crazy. But, and all of us had this musical background. Cindy used to sing with Ricky, would write songs and Cindy would sing Fred would recite poetry while they were stoned and Keith would play music. Um, but none of us had played together. So one night we had a flaming volcano drink. We couldn't afford food. We bought this drink. It had 
six straws. So Owen Scott was with us, our friend. And, and so when we finished drinking this flaming volcano, Owen said, let's go to my house. And we went down to his basement and started jamming. Well, Owen, who is now a clinical psychologist, went upstairs to write a paper. So he's not, he wasn't in the band. <laughs> and so we, we started jamming and wrote this song called Killer Bees. We were high on this flaming volcano. Maybe we smoked a little pot too. And we never finished that song. To this date, we've still never recorded Killer Bees. But um, it was kind of based on, you know, it was his first disaster song, one of many B-52's disaster songs. And then that became the, the template for the rest of the way we wrote. We always jammed. We kind of jammed and recorded everything, and then we'd pick out the parts and kind of collage them together. And nobody ever said, let's start a band. That's sort of spontaneous combustion. It was kind of a miracle to me that no one said, hey, let's, you know, you play keyboard. But I did, so I wound up being the keyboard and bass player, the keyboard bass. And But it's sort of, you know, just the three singers, because when we jammed, the three of us were singing. So that's how it sort of happened. Fantastic. And and then how did uh, your technical uh, situation when you first started back there was pretty primitive. And how, uh, what was the, the growth of you becoming aware of, A, sound systems and people that run them and technology and and also you were on a budget, like all, all bands starting out. Huh. How, how did that grow? Well, we started out very primitively. Keith Strickland and I went looking for a Farfisa organ in uh, Atlanta, and all they had were B3s. They were swimming in B3s, but we found, finally found a Farfisa because that was just kind of the sound we wanted. And uh, Keith had a drum kit. I guess he already had this little gold drum kit from high school. And, um, you know, Ricky, we got a couple of guitars. I remember we went to get a, a Mosrite guitar, which was Ricky's signature guitar, Keith and Ricky and I went out. We were answering an ad in the paper, and we went out to the country, you know, outside of Athens, to the country there. And this woman had a big beehive hairdo for reels, and you know they were selling this guitar. So, you know, we started buying a few guitars. Um, Ricky needed a bunch of guitars because he had all these different open tunings. And back then we didn't have, you know, any kind of a uh, kind of pod that would change the keys or anything, you know, so he had to have each guitar had a different tuning. And Cindy's boyfriend, now husband, they've been married forever, um, <clears throat> Keith Bennett, he became the guitar tech in the beginning. And Mo Sloten was our sound person. Now we got a manager uh, with Gary Kerfurst, who was talking heads manager and the Ramones. Uh, through Tina and Chris, they introduced us to our manager when we were playing at the Mud Club. And so, you know, we got a little bit of a professional um, kind of thing going in our first gig. You know, we still had very basic instrumentation. And like I said, everyone had to plug in their own amps and, you know, try to, we didn't really have a tech except Keith Bennett. And he was <clears throat> very much occupied with tuning Ricky's guitars. So basically we had to do our own and I'll, I'll never forget tuning the Farfisa because the Farfisa had, it was almost like it was held together with gum or something in the back. Each, each um, note had a, like you had to 
to tune it with a screwdriver. So it was like, I used to tune it. It was just maddening. And one time we were in, when we first toured, we went to Japan and Planet Claire, the keyboard part, which Keith Strickland wrote, was based on broken keys. And it was part of the beginning of the, the sound in the beginning were these two broken keys. Uh, they weren't broken. They just had a different, you know, note that was not supposed to be like instead of an F, it was an E or something. So these techs in Japan, all of a sudden they were carrying my keyboard away and they fixed it, which kind of messed up our whole sound on Planet Claire. But, but anyway, we had primitive instrumentation, but it was very, very distinctive, like the keyboard part with bass, Ricky's guitar, Keith's drums. I mean, everything when the, and the three vocalists, it was sparse, but you know, it was very um, unique. So when we first recorded and we got our manager and he set us up with a recording in the Bahamas with Chris Blackwell, we were signed to Island Records and Warner Brothers and Island um, and other territories outside the U.S. So with Chris Blackwell as the producer, we thought, oh, man, our sound is going to be so big. It's going to be so much better than we sound kind of rinky dink, we thought. But his genius was to say, I'm not messing with anything here. I'm just going to let them sound exactly how they sound. Everyone plays what they play on on tour you know when they were playing live like i played guitar parts on 52 girls and hero worship and so he said you've got to play that even though ricky could have played the better maybe but i played the parts i played the bass parts everyone played what they played and <clears throat> so when we heard the record it sounded like oh my god we sound just like us it's so sparse it's not better but that was a genius move on chris blackwell's part because that first record really caught our unique sound smart move very smart yes. move if it, ain't, if it ain't broke don't fix it right exactly so so what uh after that first record you, you made us i think you made us an ep or a single right did, or did you make a whole album we made a whole album wild planet uh-huh. But before that, you had Rock Lobster out as a single. Oh, well, that was before we had any record. Yes, that was the yeah, first how, thing. How did, that, how did that come along? Well, we, when we, after we jammed and formed the band, um, we had a few songs, and there was no place to play in Athens. So we went to play at parties. And Danny Beard was our friend and had a record store called Wuck Street in Atlanta. And he heard us and was just knocked out. So he decided actually to form his own record label starting with rock lobster called db danny beard records so he put out the single and all the pl only places we played were a couple of house parties our first party valentine's day 1977 um was in a house and we just literally shook just like in love shack song the whole shack shimmies that house shimmied and we had very, we borrowed like stereo speakers from someone's stereo. You know, we just had like very uh, basic sound system, but people were dancing. Our friends were there and dancing and the house was shaking. Um, and then we played a few house parties and then we played at Emory University that Danny rented the Coke room, like the Coca-Cola room. And we played a party there and the fans who were the only punk band, I think, in Atlanta, told us, you know, hey, why don't you go to New York and bring a tape? 
So Danny decided he we should, you know, we decided we'd put out a little single and he was going to, you know, pay for it. And we put out the single Rock Lobster with 52 girls as the B-side. And Fred came up with a cover concept and we had a picture of us in the back. And Fred had this picture of this boy throwing a saucer. And he printed a bunch, had copies printed up. And I remember Danny stuffing this, this record sleeves with the single. And we sent a box up to Bleaker Bob, who was the sort of big indie uh, record store in, in New York City in Greenwich Village. He never paid us. He was like, oh, we, I didn't get the records. It got lost. So when we finally went up to New York, there was Bleaker Bob. Our record was like in the window. A whole bunch of our singles were there, you know, featured so obviously he did get them, but we never got paid for them. But I think that really helped promote, you know, the single really took off and college radio stations started playing it. And that really, really was what sort of launched us. I think that single Rock Lobster really caught on. So it caught the attention of a lot of record companies who started coming down to a couple came down to Athens. We signed with Warner Brothers and Island and the rest is history. Once we signed a record deal. Uh, and also in going to these clubs back and forth, we kind of had a little bit of money. Um, you know, we got some more guitars. We got some amps. Uh, kept my Farfisa for the longest time. And we really just didn't change our sound very much. Um, even through the second album, when we did Wild Planet, we had written a lot of those songs in our first sort of writing sessions. And so we had a lot of that written already so our second album you know really was kind of a continuation of, of the first album you know, it was the yellow one first and then the red one wild planet um so it wasn't until when we did whammy that the sound changed and keith didn't want to play guitar i mean drums so much so keith wanted to you know we got a little i mean you could laugh now at the sort of drum machine we had it was like a toy but we did have a drum machine and we kind of incorporated that into our sound and you know we just it was very gradual the way our sound grew but most Sloten as our sound guy was very good and the sounds sound at these clubs was pretty good but my main memory is just fighting all the time to hear you know trying to hear and not go deaf, you know, because the stage sound was so loud and you could never, you know, no matter how much you said, it was always a kind of fight, you know, turn down the guitar and then the guitar, guitar would get louder and louder. And of course you can't necessarily turn the drums down. So, you know, the drummer would be loud, then the guitar player couldn't hear. And then, you know, it just got louder and louder. And as you played, everything got louder. And sometimes I feel like, Oh, it's just awful. If you, kind of feel like you're off key singing or something because you can't hear. And it's just, uh, I don't think we were off key, but you know, just the, the idea that you can't even hear yourself. Um, so the, we fought with that for years, you know, it's just really difficult. Yeah. Still, it's still difficult some days for me. How, uh, how were you traveling back then in the early days? Did you have a van? Did you? Well, we had um, Keith, Keith and Cindy's parents really helped us. I mean, I don't know if we have, would have made it if not for them loaning, loaning us their uh, station wagon. That's We went, went up to New York in the station wagon and it was nicknamed Croton. 
I don't know who named it that, but it was named Croton. And so we drove back and forth in that, and we'd go straight to New York City, play the gig. The first time we played at Max's, we drove up. We got we did a short set. They asked us to cut the set even because of timing. So we did. We only had like five, six songs or something. So we got right back in the car. We're going to drive straight back to Athens. And Danny Beard said, did any of you ask if they want you back? And we said, no. So he ran upstairs and dear Fred said, yes, we definitely want them back. So, I mean, we played on basically like a audition night, almost not audition, but there were a lot of other bands playing and there weren't that many people in the audience, but the people that were there really danced and loved it and didn't know what to think of us. So they started telling other people, you got to check out this weird band from, are they from England or Kate and Cindy drag Queens? I don't know, but you know, that were the rumors going around. They didn't know what to think of us. Uh, so we got back in the car, drove straight back to, to, to Athens, but eventually, uh, Ricky and Cindy's parents bought a van. Now they said they bought it for themselves. They were loaning it, but they really bought it for us. And the van made all the difference because we went on a little tour and I'll, you know, as usual, we put the equipment in the back and we put like foam on top of that. And that we slept in the van. I mean, I got tired you know, driving. You would squeeze in between who knows who, you know, and go to sleep. <laughs> uh, and it was crazy, you know, and we'd share hotel rooms and stay in really, you know, cheapest hotels. But we had a great little tour that Maureen set up for us. We went to Toronto. We went to um, Ohio and Minneapolis. And, you know, we slept on people's floors and we did that kind of thing. And it was just very adventurous and fun. And, you know, and then it just sort of built from there as we toured. We got a little better hotels and then. I guess I can't even remember when the first like bus tour was, but you know, we, uh, gradually, you know, we we got a course. We did longer tours. We had a bus, and that was that's became your second home, really. Oh yes, I know it. I know it well. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Don't you love so, it? So I love it. Uh, it's better than the airport. Um, when when uh, when. The, the the hit started to come and you started to scale up away from clubs to theatres to to much bigger places and big festivals and and lots of people. How did how did the band handle th- that transition, uh, or was it gradual enough that that you just grew with the, the 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 growing size of the venues you were playing? Yeah, I think we just kind of grew just very gradually with each with each record you know um we played early on we played the us festival uh which was a huge huge festival and um there's a documentary about uh, that and then there's also going to be a lot i think it's out now the live you know festival and we played uh oh what was the other festival this huge festival we played um Anyway, suffice it to say, we played a bunch of early on, like 1982, uh, maybe 83, you know, we, and we toured Japan in 1979. As soon as we finished recording the first album, we went on a world tour. We went to Australia, New Zealand, um, and we got to New Zealand, like around the second record when we played Australia, New Zealand. You know, they, we were much bigger there than in the U.S., and they were like, whoa, you know, they had a car taking us to the stage, and it's like, what? 
much bigger stages, but it was gradual. You know, we kept uh, growing, but, you know, we played some really big venues and we, we opened for Talking Heads, which was a huge break for us. Um, oh, so that, yes. <laughs> I, was, I remember it well. Yeah, it was wonderful. And what great adventures we had and some fun parties and we went to Europe and we opened for Talking Heads in Europe and it was just just amazing. But, you know, I still think our our technical and stage setup was not that sophisticated. Um, you know, we had better amps. Ricky had a lot of guitars. That's the thing. We had uh, like 10 guitars. I don't know, just all kinds of some Moserites and different guitars. And um, and I still played. I had a Korg synth bass um, and then had, uh, you know, different some different keyboards. But the the farfees it was just really really hard to um, really hard to travel with because it got like I said it got out of tune and to tune it with a screwdriver so um, you know I got synthesizer and Korg synthabase and different uh, configurations of synthesizers but um, you know other than that I mean that's a big step you know getting the synthesizer uh, new guitars new drum set you know. Keith got a great new drum set and I think, you know, we just kept buying stuff as we were able to, and we played bigger and bigger venues, but it was funny how, you know, probably the festivals were the biggest venues. We played huge, huge festivals. And people said at the, at the us festival, we just killed it. You know, lots of people said we were one of the, you know, best acts. So even though we didn't have, a huge stage sound or stacks of Marshall amps or anything, you know, our sound was really, really good. Yeah. I, I remember that heat wave festival. Too. Oh, heat wave. That's right. Yeah. That was another up one. In, up in Canada. Talking heads were on that. As right. Well. Yes. So if, uh, so you heard us to, early on. Oh yeah. I heard you at the mud club. I was at the right. mud club. So what did you think at, of our sound there? I thought you were the weirdest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> and I thought you were the weirdest guy I ever met. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, it was, uh, but you know, I was with talking, I was actually, I think, with Chris and Tina at the Mud Club that night too when you played. Um, I think they took me down there. Yeah, and um, that's where they introduced us to Gary, our manager. Yeah, yeah. I, I was I was around. I was around for that. So fast forwarding to, to, to Ricky's passing, um, how did how how did you guys cope with that? Uh, did you know it was coming? Or was, uh, it was a gradual demise. But did how did uh, how how did the band take that? I mean, obviously horribly. But well, it was really kind of the end of the band as we knew it. Uh, really, when we reemerged several years after Ricky's death in 19, you know, maybe 1987 or 80, um, you know, we kind of 88. Oh, it was kind of even later. We took a few years. I mean, it really was a new band. Um, we thought it was the end kind of, but we never declared it the end, but we just uh, were devastated. And we really didn't know in the early days of AIDS, people quite know what it was, whether it was, you know, gay cancer or they didn't really, was no cure of course no um they didn't even know how to mitigate the symptoms or anything um but i remember we were still writing and we were doing we were writing bouncing off the satellites and we basically finished the record 
Um, and the record company said, you know, you need to go back and, and write a hit. And Ricky was really stressing. Um, and we had recorded everything, but they said, you know, now go write a hit. <laughs> so this is the first time Warner Brothers had ever intruded or ever request, you know, they usually heard what we had and it's weird, but it works and, you know, don't change it. So they never said, you know, made any comments on how we looked or what our sound was or anything. So this time they said, you know, write a hit. So we thought we had written some hits, but uh, I know Ricky was stressing and we were still, you know, con convening at, uh, we had a sort of basement studio at that point in uh, the, under the building that Keith and uh, Ricky and Cindy had. So we were rehearsing down there and Ricky was looking thin, looking not well, but we chalked it up to stress and he denied and Keith denied. Keith was the only one that knew Ricky was sick. And I don't think he knew exactly what course he didn't know exactly what, how sick or what was going to happen. So um, we were still meeting every day and one day Ricky didn't show up and we were supposed to rehearse. And I was like, what, what the hell, you know, but uh, next day Keith called me or maybe that night and said, was in tears and said, Ricky's, sick he might die and I was just in utter shock and Cindy didn't even know that he had AIDS and she found out a nurse called her and said you know do you know your brother has AIDS so she was completely paralytic you know she just curled up into a ball after Ricky's death and you know didn't emerge for a while but you know we went to we all drove down we all gathered together at the their apartment and then we drove down some of us uh robert waldrop who was our great friend who wrote lyrics a lot of some of our lyrics um we drove down to athens together keith and robert and i drove down to athens and we all went to the funeral and the next day we went on a camping trip and we went out to uh joyce kilmer national forest just to kind of recover but no one ever really recovered for years after that it was just very very difficult um and we didn't know if we'd really reconvene and during that time keith decided to move out of the city to woodstock and i he and i went up here uh to at the invitation of laura levine who was a rock photographer who did our uh did photographs of us so he decided to move up here and i bought a house up here then and that was 1987 so during that time, I would I lived across the pond from Keith and I would canoe over to his house and we would listen to music. And, you know, he started sort of playing me some stuff he was writing. And, you know, it was like, wow, we started to emerge, you know, and Keith really motivated that reemergence. Uh, you know, he started playing me a few things and it's like, wow, we can do it. We can do it. You know, and we realized it was a healing thing to get together that we had something so precious and so wonderful together that really this would help us kind of heal. And that in some way, in a big way, it would conjure Ricky's presence too, because it was continuation of, you know, what he, what we started together. So we wrote, uh, we decided, I guess it was just decided we'd write in the city because Fred and Cindy were living in the city, in New York city. 
And now just backtracking a bit, when we moved from Athens, we bought a house in Lake Mayapak, New York. So we all lived in this big house together. Um, I was there. Yeah. And after a couple of years of the shining there, we <laughs> kind of stepped out and all got places in New York City. So, you know, I still had a place in the city then. And so Fred did. And so did Cindy and, her, and Keith Bennett. So Cindy and Keith had a place and Fred had another place. So Keith was the only one that lived permanently in Woodstock. So when we decided to write again, Keith commuted every day, like four days a week, down to the studio we had in, um, I think it was on Barrow, not Barrow Street. It was in Lower Manhattan. It was in the Financial District. And it was just probably right next to the World Trade Towers. It was right down there. And it was a great little studio. And this is the first time we worked with an engineer. Uh, and we kind of, you know, we jammed every day. And we we didn't give a shit about what the record company thought or what anyone thought. It was just, we just, we just wrote, you know, and it all came pouring out from our hearts. I think what, um, what Keith wrote as far as the instrumentation, then we were jamming. It's just like songs like deadbeat club. It was like the first jam that most of that song came out of. And, you know, we pieced it together. And I remember hearing that first part when Cindy said, I was good, we could talk a mile a minute. I said, that has to be the beginning. I just remember that distinctly saying, that's got to be the beginning of that song. And so we pieced it together. And um, I mean, of course, Keith's instrumentation had a, you know, it was in a, an order. So it wasn't like we had to piece every, we just had to piece all the, the jam parts together of our vocals and harmonies. And the harmonies just came out naturally. And it was just really everything kind of flowed. And when we finished, we realized we were really writing kind of this history of our time together with Ricky in Athens, songs like Dry County, when we hung out, Deadbeat Club, when we hung out and we called ourselves the Deadbeat Club because we were just, you know, we hadn't started the band yet and we were just drinking iced tea and coffee and making plans, big plans. And we had just started the band and we didn't have jobs and we were just writing music and you know that sort of idyllic time when the band first starts and you have all these plans and enthusiasm and ideas and it just came back to us in that way that kind of that joy of writing and recreating and writing together and of course uh, you had to reconfigure the musicians in the band as well at that point so that's um, why i say yeah it was a new band with with uh, and did keith take up guitar immediately well, he then, did, he decided he didn't want to play drums anymore. And I thought, you know what? I'm singing. I really want to be more upfront singing. And um, I still wanted to play. So I did play on a bunch of a bunch of songs. I played keyboard on Cosmic Thing, and I still played some guitar. I don't I don't think I played any guitar at that point anymore. So um when then a second kind of keyboard was needed i would play that but otherwise and i kind of regret not you know continuing playing the keyboard but um it was just nice the sort of three ring circus that fred and cindy and i created on stage you know because we would have a lot of interchange and our singing was so back and forth that it really was good that the three of us were kind of up front there and keith didn't want to play drums anymore and we just wanted to ex because when we recorded and because Keith wrote the instrumentation and layered it so well, it, we really needed a bigger sound. Um, so we got 
Sarah Lee to play bass. We got Pat Irwin to play keyboard and, and, um, and second guitar. Um, and our, and Zach Alford was our first drummer. So, I mean, the band was Cracker Jack. I mean, it was really pretty amazing band and the sound. And I remember our first rehearsals, it was like, wow, we have a, a real band now because, you know, before it was kind of sparse. It was like Beatles-esque sparse, you know, and uh, and then it just expanded. Uh, it was it was kind of like what we thought the first album was going to be. But luckily, it just evolved into that in a natural way. Uh, and also the times, you know, that the sort of 80s sound was much more layered and much more lots of things, synthesizers and all. So, um, you know, it was just pretty amazing to have that extended band because it also, I think, helped us in the whole healing process from Ricky and feeling like, okay, we have a new band here. Yeah. Yeah, and and so the the cosmic thing record was really what what that that exploded, um, and we had no idea that that exploded. Was that Nile Rogers was involved in that one? Well, we had Nile Rogers and Don was, uh huh. And we uh, were when we were trying to decide on a producer, and we had you know the song Love Shack went through these different iterations. We had a whole different version of it. And at one point, Keith Strickland said, it's not fit to go on the record. And Fred and I were like, oh, no, no, we know it's a hit, but, you know, it's not quite there yet. And I knew that it needed a chorus because the love shack is a little old place only happened once. And so a lot of our songs don't repeat, you know, a lot of that gives us our unique quality that a lot of our songs have don't have a chorus that repeats maybe or the chorus is at the end or it has a you know some of our songs just kind of have a bunch of different segments pieced together because of the way we jam but i knew that needed that hook i mean we had the hook love shack but um i said to don was i think we need that chorus and he totally agreed and we rehearsed at dreamland studios we rehearsed it was a beautiful studio um right near it's in west uh west hurley but it's near woodstock and it's an old church a really funky place it was just the greatest place to record and very open and really good equipment there and everything but we rehearsed and don was said yeah we need this you know suggested that we needed to put let that part in and that really clicked it brought the whole song together so um you know that was really what became the hit song and we knew we had that and we played it for rem when we were in the recording studio and they were like whoa this is a hit you know we just felt like wow this this you know when it finally came together we had it recorded it was like we knew there was some magic happening there and then we recorded with Nile rogers and he he produced the song rome and equally it was like wow this is a hit too so we knew we had something really, really good going on. And back to going back to bouncing off the satellites, which Ricky completely finished the recording of, and we didn't go back, you know, weren't able to go back and quote, write the hit. Um, Summer of Love was a dance hit without any promotion from the record company. And Steve Baker, who was our sort of rep at Warner Brothers, um, 
he was saying like it was running up the charts, but no one was following it. No one was promoting it. And he was running up and down the hall saying, why aren't we pursuing this? But they never did. It could have been a big hit. So, you know, it really needed the record company backing. backing. And Mo Austin, the president of Warner Brothers, told me personally, we kind of blew it with that record. So now we're going to, you know, really work on, on a cosmic thing. And I really think it was that push from the record company that was really behind us, you know, and the fact that we had this really great record that made, yeah. you know, made it a hit. Because you really have to have the record company behind you to make a hit, you know. Yeah, yeah. The um, So the transition from when you when you got the new band it was a new texture on stage. How did that translate from those from from those records with the bigger band, the expanded band, into your live sound? And uh, how much involvement did the sound man have in sculpting those songs for the live arena? Well, um, oh, I just remember what keyboard I had a Jupiter Eight. Um, that's just a side note there, but um, well, I think. You know, we worked hand in hand. We had Mike Scarf was our sound guy. And I think, you know, you have to have a trust in the sound person. You have to have a trust. And, but there is, a, there is the sound that you want in your head <laughs> and the sound that, you know, the sound person has. And I think there was always this struggle that Keith Strickland wanted to hear a more rock and roll sound. And I think Mike because we had three vocalists wanted to also be able to hear the lyrics, the audience be able to hear the lyrics and at least hear the singers. So there's always that fight. There's always that balance, you know, and that's also in mixing. I mean, we used to just hang over. I mean, even with Nile Rogers and Don was, we would just linger in the, you know, in the control room and really to the annoyance, probably of the engineer who usually is the one mixing, um, you know, and be like, oh, you know, there's always like, I'm not loud enough. No, I'm not loud enough. The guitar is not loud enough. Turn up the bass. Uh, so, you know, there's always that delicate balance and, and mixing a record is just like, to me, I just, that's, I hate doing that. I hate listening to mixes because it's so subtle, you know, sometimes and, you know, the balance between things. I've just, you just have to have a trust too, eventually in, in the mixer, but it can make a huge difference. And even the mastering of the record, how, you know, if you're bringing up the bass, if you're bringing up certain uh, tones, you know, it just uh, certain frequencies. Um, and I think the same thing is true of the live sound that you have to trust the sound person to deliver. And you do want to have the vocals heard. Yes, it can't be just a blur of pure sound, but you want it to rock. So there's the whole uh, rub, I guess, and and yes. great thing about having a great sound person. I think Mike was amazing, and he was more precise than maybe Keith wanted, but I think he made it rock too. And then sometimes you play, as you well know, venues where you have a limit on the dBs, you know, the decibels you can have uh, in a neighborhood or some place where they're people living around and you can't just blast their ears off yeah i i i uh i had mike mix a couple of times before i got involved actually 
uh, when Bradford Cobb uh, brought me in. I think we a Tom Tom Club opened for the B fifty twos, and Bradford was impressed with what I did for Tom Tom Club, and he said, oh, "Would you mind uh, if I called you and see if you could come and do the B fifty twos?" Now going back, Keith would always be. I think a little insecure that the guitar wasn't loud enough and rock and roll enough because Mike mixed it more FM radio th- vocal. You know, the vocals were very precise and out front there. And I mix a little differently. I mixed you like a punk dance band and stuck the vocals on top where Mike's priority, I think, was getting that vocal blend. I, I managed to do both. And Keith actually came to a show where he wasn't playing on the last tour and stood beside me the mix and said, ah, that's what it sounds like out here. I know. Isn't that amazing? Because you think, oh, uh, I don't think, but sometimes one thinks, uh, I can hear what's being mixed and I'm not loud enough out there. You don't know when you're on stage. You have to trust. And I knew I could yeah. trust you because, well, it wasn't on Bradford only. It was our decision that we brought you in after Mike Scarf because, you know, we knew what your sound was like. We knew we'd heard you mix. We heard Tom Tom Club. We heard Talking Heads. Yeah, I, I love I love mixing. I love mixing the B fifty twos. It's a well, it's we a, know a, we trust you. You know, we know that we can trust you to make it rock and to make it roll. Yes, yes, <laughs> and 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 you get a laugh and sometimes a little tension with your day. <laughs> yeah, with Frank. With Frank, it can you be. You never either, know, and we get. You never know. The eyebrows too. The, the eyebrows always show up, you know, depending <laughs> if they're if they're flustered or blowing in the wind. Um, what's going on today with with uh, with live music or the lack of it, and 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 also the 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 way that everyone has a recording studio in their bedroom now. You know, everyone's got a laptop and everybody's got 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 tools, uh, but there's no. There's no collaboration. It's very difficult to collaborate on Zoom in a meaningful way. From I don't get it. It's I, I need I need uh, maybe I'm just very old school. But what's your take on on where this what's going to happen with with music in this pandemic? Because we're 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 in this 2020 pandemic thing right now. Well, it's very interesting because I've done a few live stream or quite a few live stream things there's one being rebroadcast today actually called women take the stage and i collaborated with ken murray who's a b52's keyboard bass uh keyboard and slash second guitar player and kat dyson who's this amazing guitar player and ganessa james who's a guitarist and bass player and singer uh and she played bass and we did a zoom, you know, and then I sang and it was a song that I'm putting on my new solo record, which is just about ready. And so it was, it's already been recorded, but of course this was a stripped down live ish, you know, live recorded version. So that's the first time I did um, something with three other musicians, you know, so we were all in our little boxes and Ken laid down the keyboard part and, you know, I just said, I don't want drums. I just want this to be, you know, stripped down version. So then I, you know, we sent it to uh cat who did the guitar part and then Ganessa did the bass or maybe it was the reverse. Um, and then I had the video put, then I sang on, you know, sang it and recorded it. Now this is a challenge because I'm learning uh, logic 
and I can't believe for years I thought, I can't learn that. It's too hard. You know, people are learning logic. I was like, wow, it's not that hard. I mean, it's just a glorified garage band. So I'm learning. I mean, (laughs) you could go deep into it. You could be very, very, you know, it it could be very complex. If you want it to be, you could go to EQing and everything, but and mixing, but just to record, it's not that hard. So I'm learning the basics of it. So I'm, you know, pressing play and I'm pressing, you know, pressing record, I mean, and pressing the video record and I've got the light and the little setup and I'm looking at my lap, my uh, iPad and, you know, trying to sing the song through without any mistakes and trying to, you know, also we got the video going. I don't lip sync. Some people record it and then lip sync. I just don't understand why you wouldn't just record it while you're singing. But so it is essentially live. It's a take, you know, and I don't usually do a lot of takes. I just get the best out of a couple. And um, so it's been interesting because I had to really step up the whole. I noticed in the beginning of these live streaming that people did not have the technology together. Like the first live stream thing I did, you could see people were looking down at their laptops, you know, and recording and you can see the only their chin and, you know, it was just very not technical. Now people have these mics. It's like, what is that? They have these big setups, you know, and uh, people are, you know, doing stuff from their, it sounds like they're singing to an entire, you know, their track of their album, which happens a lot, I think. And that kind of defeats the purpose of it. I think it should be stripped down and a lot of country singers did a, did that very well, you know, just singing acoustic guitar outside. And it was really refreshing. Now it's getting a little bit like, ah, you know, I, I've done yeah. these live stream things quite a bit. How can it continue like this? You know, can it, what's going to happen? And I don't know if this like sort of drive in uh, concerts where everyone's sitting in their car, because that's just going to, people are going to smuggle a weed and, have a little tequila and they're going to be on the roof of the car and then it's going to be a tailgate party and then forget the social yeah. distancing uh, you know oh they could be or they could be in the car with their clothes off you, you know that's oh the first the first thing i go to <laughs> <laughs> and then, well that's, and drive that's okay yeah but the old not driving. tequila not not tequila but you know various states of undress well you know? all right well that's Maybe that's a one date's aspect. a date, you know. But but then again, you know, a date's a date, but it might be Metallica, you know. Right. Uh, well, I don't know where it's going to go. You know, where no one—that's the weird thing. No one knows what's going to happen. You know, I don't even well, know when we're going to have another gig. You know, all our gigs were canceled, and yeah. I, I think we avoided a huge, you know, like uh, oh, uh, not going on well, that '80s cruise. Puerto Rico and an 80s cruise, yeah. Mid-March, yeah. We had a gig for mid-March, and my wife, Monica, kept saying, I'm not letting you go, and I'm like, they're going to cancel it. But uh, Terry Lynn... The the insurance company didn't want us to go. No. Well, our uh, tour manager, Terry Lynn, called me and said, do you think we should go? And I'm like, really? I don't think so. And then I texted the rest of the band and our manager and said, you know, I don't think we should do this. And they all agreed like, well, maybe it's not a good idea. Um, and I do know that there's some, that cases of COVID-19 broke out on that tour, on that yes, cruise. On that, shi- on, that, yeah. on that ship. Do you have a, do you have a, a favorite venue that you'd like to revisit of that you've been in been at over the years, a favorite place to play? Or, I or love, a, memorable, a memorable place to play. I love uh, the Greek theater. 
in LA. I think that's a really beautiful place to play. Um, uh, I, you know, what I loved were these outdoor sheds when we did cosmic thing and good stuff. And we toured in a bus and we were gone for like over a year. We were like a year and a half tour on cosmic thing. And you were asking me how that sort of evolution of from clubs to, you know, bigger place, bigger venues. We started out, you know, when Love Shack started getting college radio, we were going around playing kind of larger clubs. And then it started getting radio play. And then we're playing theaters. And then it got more. And then we're playing stadiums. They were playing these outdoor, well, not quite stadiums, but, you know, big outdoor venues. And those are my favorite places, these outdoor sheds, because you pull up in the bus and and also we did the True Colors tour like that too. And it'd be all outdoors in the summer. And they're usually in nice places. And I would usually have, I would take a run and I brought weights with me much to, you know, I'm sure the crew didn't like having to unload my crate of weights, but it wasn't a whole lot, you know, I had a bench and I would do a little workout um, and I'd run and there'd be, you know, usually a woods around there. And then we do sound check and then, you know, there'd be a dressing room to get ready. And I don't know, it was just sort of nice being outside in the summer. And those were my favorite places to play. You know, the crowd would always be really enjoying themselves. And another place I'd love to play is Mandalay Bay in, in Vegas. Cause you're on this like Flintstones kind of cliff and it's hot. It's just so hot for the band, but the audience is in a pool and yeah. You know, it was kind of just a really unique kind of place. And also the Cape Cod Melody Tent, which spun, it would rotate slowly around. And that was always, Fred always hated that venue, but I always thought it was fun. We we we've 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 had a lot of we've had a lot of fun there, but 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 I do see I do see some dates going in the book for the B fifty twos. We put them in the book and then they go away, but people are still looking to 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 book dates. So that's that's a, a very optimistic sign. Well, people are but thinking you, you, next summer. You know, next summer yes. it'll be all fine. But who knows? Maybe not all fine, but doable perhaps. And I think it could be by next summer. That's. Yeah, but next summer is not that far away. It's not. <laughs> you know? It's not. It's it's not in real terms. In real terms. And who knows what's going to happen this winter? Um, you know, I feel the live stream things have really kept me going, and I even did uh, a little mix tweaking with someone for a, a song for my solo record. Uh, we had to kind of discuss with the mix, the guy that was mixing, and co my co writer uh, Jimmy Harry, and. We did a Zoom, and he was like, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Uh, so it kind of worked. It was a little hard to really hear or anything, but, uh, you know, it worked. But, uh, you know, I think the future of Zoom mixing is not really going to be wor working out so well. But I think definitely recording, people are recording now, like you said, just uh, lay down a track, send it to someone else. They can lay down their part. You know, it's very, very piecemeal. But, you know, it can work. That's the way people are doing it. And it's much the fact that people could do it in their own basement or, you know, recording studio at home is great. Yeah, I, I use Logic. I'm, I'm, I'm using Logic right now. And it's uh, I love it. I yeah, love it. it's amazing. It's, as a sound engineer, it's not a it's not a big learning curve for me. Yeah, sure. Uh, for the for all the plugins and everything else, you know, I just I just have to pay attention because normally I I. I 
I have to pay attention to what's going on on the stage. That's a busier thing because I've got 29 faders that, that are not aut- on automation. And you only and got 28 are, faders in your brain. And my, and my <laughs> fingers are moving all the time, you know, the mix. But uh, I miss it terribly. I do, I do. I miss the road terribly. I never thought I'd say that. But because, uh, because we have a good, uh, the B-52s are a great operation, you know. We, we, well, we're like we, tra- a traveling family circus, you know. It's, it's we, definitely, we roll very well. Yeah, and I do miss, you know, the camaraderie and uh, the travel. And, you know, there's an excitement in traveling and being in different places and seeing old friends in different places. The connection with the audience, you know, is awesome. And our audience was building and building you know, more young people coming, just, I mean, we're really on a roll. Um, so, you know, we had great past two years, a tour with Culture Club and a tour with Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark in Berlin last summer. Um, Thompson Twins. Thompson Twins, yes. I mean, it was all really great uh, rolling thunder. <laughs> yeah, there were great tours and really great audience response. And I miss that, but I also, for the summer anyway, I'm really grateful to be home. There is a time when, you know, just, wow, it's so great being home all summer and having the garden and being with Monica and just, but the live stream things have kept the music going for me and I'm still getting together, finishing my solo record. So that's kept me active and doing music and also learning logic. Yes, that's what I'm doing. I'm I'm just curious and experimenting with it. And uh, yeah, I cannot so wait to get back on a bus with you or a plane or a or train or a, <laughs> or a train. Yeah. And I'm hoping to talk to, to, to the other two, uh, to, to Fred and Cindy. I've, I've invited Fred, uh, but I haven't had. And, and uh, I think Cindy's just relaxing at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So She's, um, the, she did the time one. Won't come. She did one thing, one uh, live stream thing, and it was really good. She did it from her house in Athens. So, yeah, I, that worked out. I think with her, she played with her son, played the guitar, which is awesome. Oh, um, brilliant, brilliant. And uh, I think you uh, should talk to Keith because he really has a oh, lot without, to say about Without, without question, yeah, I'll, the, get, I'll, I'll have a wee chat with Keithy boy. And, yeah, the uh, technical aspects, he's really, really uh, on point with that. Yeah. And he continues to write music. He's writing music. Uh, And we were planning to reconvene and try to write a couple of songs. But this thing has put a damper on that part. It's weird times, weird times. Yeah. Well, Kate, thank you very much for your time. All right. And your participation. And we, we we didn't go down the rabbit hole of the old days when we were all partying because... You know, everybody knows about that. You know, yeah. anybody that know anybody that knows me knows about that. <laughs> uh, and and but this is now we've 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 come through that, and and uh, the attention to detail in the art that we create is yeah. is the most important thing. Well, they were and, good uh, times. They were good we times we had. <laughs> uh, I love you, Kate Pearson, and there's nothing you can do about it. All, All right? right, love you too, Frank Gallagher. All right, my lovely. Later. Later. Bye bye. Bye, Frank. And thanks for plugging in We Can't Do Without You And if you can, please consider supporting the show So that we can keep it running through 2021 Go to our website at soundmanconfidential.com To find the link And to check out our amazing upcoming guest list If you haven't already 
plug into previous episodes with the four original Talking Heads. What other podcast can claim that exclusive? And for all you Simple Minds fans, you can hear my chat with my old pal Jim Carrey in episode one. Happy holidays, everyone. Keep safe. I'll catch you at the next sound check on Soundman Confidential. Soundman Confidential is produced by Alan Black with our team, Chip Bentley on sound production, web design, Addy Bell, original music, Paul Westwater, and public relations, Paddy DeVries at Devious Planet Media. <laughs>